and we're reading from 1 Peter 1 verses 13 to 2 verse 3. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Thank you so much, Bianca. Uh, now, let me just uh, start off with a word of explanation. A number of people have been asking me how I got my head wound. Right? And uh, so I thought I should... It, easier if I tell you all together rather than one at a time. So yesterday we were shopping at a supermarket and uh, there was a bag snatcher who snatched an old lady's bag and raced off with it. I happened to be in the way. I tackled this guy to the ground and <laughs> held him down until the police... Well, that's the story I'd like to tell you. <laughs> what happened was we did actually do some shopping. I came home, I was putting it in the pantry and I hit my head on a hinge. <laughs> So it's just slightly this impressive, isn't it? You know, uh, and slightly more sort of self-declaring of my stupidity, really. But <laughs> there you go. It's, a, it's like all scalp worms that bled incredibly and look so impressive. Uh, I just wish I had a better story to go with it. There you go. Anyway, now you know, and I'm fine. I'm not concussed as far as I know or anything like that. It's all good. You can tell me afterwards after I finish preaching if that is the case or not. Uh, <laughs> We're going to keep focusing on 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1 through to the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, we've heard that the, the readings in the leaflet, if you want to follow along, there's also an outline that's probably useful for you to have in front of you as we work through. But let me, let me pray as we start off. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a, a God who speaks to us and that your word is a, is a living word that refreshes our hearts and minds uh, we read about that this morning, and therefore, Father, we pray that'll be our experience as we reflect on it and as we think it through together. So, Father, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When really good things happen in your life, it's almost like they're not good unless you get, get to share them. You know, it's one of those things, when good things happen, you want to tell other people. You know, you get a promotion at work, you want to tell people. Uh, you're getting married, normally you tell people. You know, you get engaged, you know, you tell people. Um, when you're uh, 
buy a house. You tend to tell people. You know, all those sort of big things in life uh, you tend to share with other people and they get excited with you, right? So if I was to ask you what's the uh, best thing that ever happened in your life, well, for me, it was becoming a Christian. But, you know, other people didn't seem to be as excited as I was. You know, my friends didn't see it that way. You know, I was at uni at the time, and when I told my uni mates that I'd become a Christian, uh, they didn't say things like, oh, how come it happened to you and not us? That is so unfair. You know, that wasn't their immediate response in my experience. They didn't want to become followers of Jesus like I was. They didn't want to swap places with me. I'm not saying they didn't respect me or have regard for my choices or anything like that. It's just that they weren't quite as excited as I was about what had happened. Last week we saw uh, from the start of 1 Peter chapter 1 that being a Christian is a remarkable privilege. It is an extraordinary kindness of God that he brings us into his family. It is a wonderful thing. But, you know, sometimes it's hard to hang on to that truth when people around you don't quite see it that way. When you live in a world where people don't share that same conviction about how good it is. So why is it that following Jesus is not popular? You know, why weren't there people lining up at 8 o'clock this morning trying to get into this building, you know, so that when you arrived there just weren't any chairs. We just had to say, come back next week, but come back earlier, you know. But that's not what happened, was it? Why aren't people... I mean, if you may be here this morning and not a, not a believer. Why, why not? You know, what are the things that cause you to sit back from taking that sort of step? My experience with my friends is it works something like this. They, they generally saw Christianity as a system of religious rules. You know, a life of deprivation now so that in due course you've got a front row seat in heaven. You know, that's sort of delayed gratification sort of an idea. But, you know, I just want to say that nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. There's such a bizarre and perverse view of Christianity. When we start to move our way into this next section of 1 Peter from verse 13 of chapter 1 on, it starts to talk about behaviour you know, how Christians live. And so you might think, ah, this is the religious rules bit. You know, this, this is it. We finally arrived at it. This is what I must now do if I am to be a follower of Jesus. But again, let me say that it's just a total misread of the Christian life. You see, being a follower of Jesus means you actually become part of a family. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, Christianity is not about following a series of rules. Look at, look at the language of chapter 1. Uh, if, if you don't have it in front of me, let me refer you back. Chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, God has given us new birth. See, that's the phrase that's used. You know, we haven't joined a political party or a sports club where we pay subs for certain benefits. We've been brought into a family. In verse 2 of chapter 1, God is described as a father. Not a policeman, right? a father. And in verse 13 and verse 17, we're told to call upon this father. 
In chapter 1, verse 8, we're to love Jesus, our brother, the one who died for us. In chapter 1, verse 14, we're described as obedient children. Right? Children, not slaves or servants or employees. Children. Chapter 1, verse 22, we're to love one another deeply from the heart. Not club members, but brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2, we're described as newborn babies. Now, I get it. Our experience of families in a room like this is going to be quite diverse. Um, Some of us come from wonderful families and we have treasured memories and some of us, not so much. It's uh, difficult. But, you know, we all have a sense of what we think family should be. You know, that sort of idea of what it should be like. You know, a place where there's love and trust and care and affection and integrity. A family where you just want the best for each other. I know raising our kids, we always wanted them not to be jealous of one another, but when any of them had a success, to rejoice with their siblings. You know, you want to have that sort of culture as a family. We're to support one another when we grieve. And these are the people that we celebrate life with together. That's family, isn't it? So from 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, what we're doing is we're exploring what it means to be part of God's family. That's what we're talking about. Notice how verse 13 starts off with a, a therefore. Uh, therefore, that is, given God's grace to us and Jesus and the privilege of being chosen by God, verses 1 to 12, given all that we've just covered last week, therefore, how will we live as his children? And we start to explore these sort of family values. And every, every family has values or should have values, shouldn't they? I remember when our kids were growing up, uh, one of the things... Uh, we used to just try and drum into them was the fact that we always thought that people were more important than stuff. That was something Sue and I were keen on. People more important than stuff. So if our kids accidentally broke something, and it didn't matter how valuable or expensive it was, not a big deal. Never a big deal. Okay. But if they did something to destroy a relationship, if they lied or were deceptive or unkind or rude friends that was a really big deal in our family that was one of our our values as our kids were growing up so in this section what we have are five key values right five key values that we're exploring now for the technical technically minded among us there are five imperative verbs right that we come to if I turn to, you know, the school teachers among us, you know, they'd be able to explain exactly what that means. I grew up in a, a time of education where we were meant to learn English by sort of immersion, you know, sort of we'd absorb it through our pores. We were never explained these sort of rules. But the, the imperative verbs are the, the sort of hooks, the verbs that instruct you to do something, and they're hooks that operate throughout this section, all right? Let me point them out to you, and then we'll fill them out together, okay? Chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope on grace, right? Chapter 1, verse 15, be holy. Chapter 1, verse 17, live in reverent fear. Chapter 1, verse 22, love one another deeply. 
chapter 2, verse 2, crave pure spiritual milk. All right, the imperatives in this section, they're all in the outline if you need to go back to them. Let's look at each one of them together. Firstly, set your hope on future grace. Hope on future grace. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, verses 1 to 12, we've already received grace. Right? We have a relationship with God. We know that's his kindness to us. But here it talks about a future grace, a grace that's revealed when Jesus is revealed. You know, we receive it then, when he returns to wind up the history of our world. And it's a future hope. But that future hope is meant to shape our lives right now. And that's hard, I think, because we live in a world that's dominated by the here and now. You know, long-term planning for an Australian is, I wonder what the weather's going to be like this afternoon. You know, like it's, you know, we don't tend to think far in advance. Who will win the election next Saturday? Ooh, that's long-term forecasting, you know. Uh, you know, it's, uh, do I have enough money in my superannuation to retire on? Our interest rate's going to go up. We, we're immersed in the here and the now, I think. So how do you set your hope on future grace? Or verse 13, you have minds that are alert and fully sober. Literally what this says here is gird up the loins of your minds. Gird up the loins of your minds. And of course it's an ancient image. Uh, the picture is of a guy in a you know, really long caftan, uh, you know, uh, first century. And if he wanted to hustle, right, he had to pull up his caftan so he could free up his legs to run. Okay, so that's a sort of a... So the idea is... You know, gird up the loins of your brain. You know, it's to roll up the shirt sleeves of your brain as you move forward. Except when it talks about mind, it's not talking about just what you think. It's talking about the seat of your convictions, you know, your heart, what drives you, what motivates you, what you think's important. That's what's on view here. I um, know someone who's just finished their uh, professional specialisation as a doctor. And... That person, uh, I know them well, and they did all those years of education, you know, including the six years undergraduate work, and then the professional additional studies to actually be able to specialise while they got married, had two children, and a whole lot of other responsibilities. And for anyone who gets that, and many of us will have ex similar experiences in different ways, you know that to have that sustained trajectory requires enormous determination and purpose and focus to be able to do it. Friends, we get caught up in this world, in a live-for-now sort of world, but if we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we study for heaven, we, we actually put our, our convictions and our space there to the end point and then drive back to the now point so that that truth shapes the reality of who we are. How much do you think about future grace? You know, if I'm honest with you, I probably don't think about it anywhere near enough. It's almost not concrete enough for me. But the nature of our relationship with the Lord Jesus reaching its ultimate point, isn't that something to look forward to? 
and our Heavenly Father and our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all its final fullness. What do you dream about? See, what's in your bucket list? What does occupy your imagination? You know, what would happen to you that would make you go, yes, in a culturally appropriate, personality appropriate way for you? You know, like, uh, what would it be? That I don't do that, actually. But, you know, I, what would you, what would cause you to think that way? And do you think about the seismic change that will occur when Jesus returns? When Jesus returns, what, what will you be worried about then? Yeah, what will concern you at that point? When Jesus returns, what will you wish you'd invested your life in now? The reformer, uh, Martin Luther, he put it like this. He said, we need to live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose again this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's not complete, but it's a helpful way just to frame our lives. Okay, that's the first one. Second imperative, be holy, particularly verses 14 and 15. Just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. Be holy. And yet, isn't this a word that gets mucked up all the time? Uh, again, you know, Sue and I remember being around a meal table one night when our kids were quite young, and we did that routine, you know, Tried to ask our kids what they did during the day. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. But we asked well, you know, our children that question, and one of them said, today I learned how to pray. Now, we thought this was a little surprising because uh, we figured that we'd been teaching this seven-year-old to pray for quite some time. Uh, you know, so we wondered what was going on. We said, what do you mean? You, know, you learned how to pray. Show us. You know? and, he, and then he, he got that very serious look in his face and he folded his hands like this. And he bowed his head and he adopted a non-childlike voice, very out where you went, Our Father who art in heaven, you know. And I, th- you know, I think that is quite often the way people think about holiness, don't they? You know, that Christians are rule-keeping wowzers. Yeah, people who think that they're better than other people because they go to church, you know, and they don't use drugs and they... Don't dance while I play poker machines and things like that. You know, like it's, it's, it's often, you know, a typecast sort of thing. What I want you to notice here, when it talks about holiness, how many examples are used of what it means to be holy? The examples? There's none. No examples at all. It's a relationship, not a rule book. Pick it up, verse 15. Read it again. Just as he who called you is holy, be holy. Be holy because I'm holy. Do you get the strong, connected thing? Kids do imitate their parents, don't they? Um, Again, you know, like I'm a pastor. I remember being in church in town one time, wandering around shaking hands with people. And there was one of my kids, three-year-old, wandering up and down the aisle, shaking hands with people and welcoming them to church. You know, I'd taken that child through a three-year training course to get them to that point and explain how to do it in the firm. You know, no, I hadn't. He just did it because I was doing it. Be holy 
because I am holy. We're God's kids. And you know the pressure to go over the flow, don't you? To fit in. To look the same as other people. Uh, to feel the need to have a house because other people own a house. Uh, to travel because that's what everyone aspires to do. You know, it's like the, the behaviour, the peer pressure to fit in when people are telling stories about other people just to go along with it or even join in the workaholism. Everyone's working really hard. I must work hard. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of ways in which we know that peer pressure. But friends, we, we never run with the crowd. We always follow our Heavenly Father. Uh, that's what we do. The third imperative, live in reverent fear, verses 17 to 21. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your life as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, I want you, I want you to notice there's a, it's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? A father who judges. A father who judges. Now, I, I worked as a, a lawyer for a couple of years and I remember the first time I appeared before a magistrate. It was, it was a fairly simple, guilty plea, uh, but I was still pretty nervous, let me tell you, and I'm sure that showed uh, to absolutely everybody. So we rolled up to court. Here's the way it's went to, meant to work. The charges read out, client pleads guilty. I say things um, to try and ameliorate, ameliorate the sentence and that the magistrate passes the sentence, right? That's why it's meant to work, right? It's a very straightforward process. But I reckon this magistrate knew it was my first time. So he decided to have a little bit of fun with me, you know? And uh, so what happened was, charges read, they're guilty. I started reading out my script of what needed to be said. And the magistrate kept interrupting and asking questions. It was one of the most... It was already terrifying. It was doubly terrifying, you know? And I thought... This is not the way it's meant to work, right? He pleads, I read, you pass sentence, you know? <laughs> it was just so scary. Friends, God is a judge. But notice he's a father judge. Father judge. If you, if you don't have a relationship with God, if you wouldn't count yourself a follower of Jesus, actually, it, it's appropriate to be terrified because you don't know him as father. You know, I think that's absolutely right. And you ought to have a think about that because it's a very significant thing. But if you know God as Father, then sure you'll have awe at his character. But, you know, you'll also have a deep knowledge that you're loved by the judge and father of the universe, which is an extraordinary thing, really. That's why our security in this relationship with God is just spelt out in more detail. Did you pick it up as we go along? Verse 18. It was not with precious things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. The song we, just, we sang just a little bit earlier. There are two ideas here I want to focus on. Firstly, the idea of being redeemed or ransomed from this empty way of life. The point being made here is really that if you have no relationship with God, then this is it. You know, what you can see, taste, touch and feel 
That's it. There isn't anything else. That is, your life is empty. It's an empty way of life because it's not going anywhere except at the grave. Uh, that's the idea. Long term, you miss out on the thing of most value for eternity. But the idea of being ransomed with precious blood is interesting. If you're a follower of Jesus, often you skip over this because you know it so well. But it is quite uh, extraordinary. Potentially he mentions gold here. Gold is the stable economic unit. Uh, when a recession happens, the price of gold always goes up because it is so reliable and always, always has been. When I Googled gold, um, I read this. Gold lasts a lifetime. See, it doesn't perish, right? That's a good thing, isn't it? But notice here in verse 18, we're told it's perishable. That is, it's useful for 70 or 80 years. And then it has absolutely no value once you die. It has no point at all. Now, contrast that, uh, you know, gold and the blood of Jesus. I also Googled the Red Cross blood bank. Do you know how long they store blood for? Refrigerated? 42 days. That's the maximum they store it for. Then it apparently goes off. That's because blood is perishable. Isn't that interesting? But here in verse 18, the blood of Jesus is described as imperishable. And you get the point, don't you? If, you were, if you're a follower of Jesus, you were redeemed with his blood. His blood shed for your forgiveness. And that establishes a relationship with God that endures for eternity. It cannot be interfered with. It is imperishable. It is precious. And that just dominates the sense of who you are. It lasts. And of course what that means is you won't devote your life to dumb stuff like gold or silver or a career or a house or because it's perishable. It would be foolish to overly invest in that. But you'll identify with the one who's paid a high price for you because he has secured you forever in his family. It is a wonderful thing. He goes on. So uh, the fourth imperative, love one another deeply. Verse 22, love one another deeply from the heart. Uh, here's the thing. You cannot be loved by God and stand at a distance from his family, your family, your siblings. You can't. It's, it's just not, it lacks integrity. And the idea of loving deeply here is to love at full stretch. Uh, it's the athlete striving for the finish line, you know, full of energy and determination. And that means we'll reject unloving behaviours. You pick it up, say, later on in chapter 2, verse 1, things like malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander. We're not people who say one thing to a person's face and another behind their back. That's not the way we roll. We won't manipulate people uh, for our own gain. That's not the way brothers and sisters in Christ treat one another in this family. And positively, the theme of love just runs through this whole letter. 
if we were to go to chapter 2, verse 17, it talks about uh, loving the family of believers, or chapter 3, verse 8, love one another, or chapter 4, verse 8, love each other deeply, or chapter 5, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. I'm not so sure about that one, but, you know, it's the, it's the idea of, you know, how you actually express that love with each other. You know, what does that look like? There's a guy I work with uh, called Ben. Ben grew up in a pastor's family. And I remember him saying to me one day, I cannot remember growing up until I left home, my parents ever saying negative things about the people in the congregations that they served in. A wonderful thing for a pastor's kid to be able to say about his parents. Just that integrity of life. Now, I know his parents, actually. We were sort of peers in youth groups together, a bit terrifying, but there you go. Um, and I know they went through all sorts of challenges. And I know that at different points they weren't treated particularly well. But they determined to honour their Heavenly Father and love their brothers and sisters in Christ. How did you find the COVID period? You know, when we were, weren't able to meet, when we had to just watch online. It was actually a bit more straightforward, wasn't it? You know, you just sit at home in your lounge room and uh, didn't even have to change out of your pyjamas, you know, <laughs> and didn't have to worry about anyone else. But see, I've actually found it hard as we've reconnected. There's a strain that comes with relationships. You know, a work that is required as we come together. I've had to build up my social fitness again, I think. It's uh, been a bit like that. But friends, we're family. And here's the thing. You don't get to choose this family. God does. And then you're stuck with one another. But not stuck with one another. We're to love one another deeply from the heart. And that requires a real commitment to one another as we press forward together. Then we come to the last imperative. I'm sorry, I'm, I really wanted to jump through that. I could have just focused on one of them, but I thought it was helpful just to see the snapshot, you know, the gallery. Fifth one, crave pure spiritual milk, chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Back in... Um, Verse 23, it's just spoken uh, about the imperishable word of God. And then there's that quote from Isaiah chapter 40 that you pick up from verse 24. You know, all people are like grass and their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God's word stands. Then when we come to chapter 2, verse 2, uh, we read this phrase, spiritual milk. The word that's translated spiritual here is the, uh, the Greek word called logikon, and it's uh, linked to the Greek word logos or word. All right? You don't need to know the Greek, but um, the idea here is really important. So we're to crave the milk of the word of God. That's what we're being told here, the milky word. Now, I've got um, eight grandchildren. Two of them are still breastfeeding, okay? Three of them are still breastfeeding. I just don't see that one very often because they're in Sydney, right? Uh, but 
you know, babies, they just cannot get enough of their mother's milk. <laughs> They're just like that. Friends, believers, they just cannot get enough of God's word. They love it and are sustained and nourished by it. So can I ask you, what's your diet like? So this, is, this is not talking to the immature. This is talking to those, the characteristic of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Loving the word of God. Can't get enough of the Bible? You know, just look forward to meeting with God's people and gathering around his word and being stretched and wrestling with it and encouraging one another in it. Understand, this is not so you have strong theological grids and can have good theological arguments. That's not the point. It's so that you grow in love for God and what he loves, his family. That's the reason why we do it. Five imperatives. Can I ask you, do you ever feel um, shortchanged by God? you ever feel like you've, you've missed out in some way? You know, when you look around at the people who don't follow Jesus, do you find yourself thinking, longing for some of the things that they have that you don't have? You know, I think it can be hard to feel privileged when the people around you don't see it that way. I think that is a challenge at points. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. You have tasted that the Lord is good. You have tasted that the Lord is good. Friends, if you're a believer, you are precious. You are loved. And you have been expensively purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ into his family. And when you get that, it just so profoundly shapes your understanding of how you live and what's important and who you are. Queen Victoria was the one who reigned on the throne in England for 63 years from 1837. Quite a, quite a reign. She was 18 years old when she was crowned. Apparently it wasn't until she was 10 years old that she worked out that she was next in line to the throne. She was with her tutor, they were reading through a history book and apparently they had not let her read this until she was 10. And she came to the family tree and saw that she was the next name, name in line. She, so she asked her tutor if it was true. And the tutor confirmed that in fact she was uh, the next in line to the crown. Now apparently this is what she said. Then I will be good. See, she understood that identity has an impact on life. She understood it. Friends, chapter 2, verse 3. We have tasted that the Lord is good. We know this to be the case. And there'll be stacks of people around you who just won't get it. But we do know that we are supremely blessed to know the Lord. To be given this window into his marvellous character. So, of course, 
will have a deep desire to honour him with our lives and to live in a way that pleases him, to imitate him and to live for him. Of course we will, won't we? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your word, a word that is so evocatively rich. And Father, we do pray that uh, you'll keep saying that word deep in our minds and hearts, that by the work of your spirit you'll stir us uh, to know you better, to know all you've done for us more, and then to long to be holy because you are, to live a life that's consistent with your character and your purposes. Father, we know that's a, a quest, it's a, it's a long-term quest, uh, but we look forward to when the Lord Jesus returns, when you wind up the history of this world and we dwell with you uh, for an eternity uh, face to face. Father, help these things shape our minds and hearts so that we long to live with, with relationship with you and to love one another. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.